In the throes of a divisive election season that's made worse by a pandemic, my father and I hosted a webinar recently with faith leaders to talk about how people of faith can engage politically in 2020 as peacemakers instead of partisan combatants. The conversation included Justin Gibney, the founder of Anne Campaign, a Christian social justice organization. Dr. Richard Land, the longtime president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And Dr. Land is also the executive editor of ChristianPost.com. Michael W. Smith was a part of the conversation. He's a Grammy award-winning Christian musician. Michael Ware, who led evangelical outreach in the Obama White House. And finally, Caitlin Shess, an author and theologian. As a special episode of the podcast, we hope you enjoy this conversation and find it encouraging. I love it. We're all here. All right, let's get started. I'm Weston Womp. Uh, I've got the privilege of serving as the senior political strategist at Issue One. And Issue One is a nonpartisan reform organization in Washington that on our best day is really known for bringing people together for conversations like this um, from the left, the right, the middle uh, to talk about things that uh, don't always get talked about. Uh, by people who don't agree across the board. I mean, right, our politics increasingly are uh, just us talking to people who we agree with. You know, the things that we're going to talk about today, faith and politics, are off limits at a lot of dinner tables. Uh, But my dad served in Congress for 16 years. And so at our family dinner table over, uh, you know, really 30 years, this is just about all we've talked about. So it's pretty comfortable turf for us. And uh, most of the people who are with us today have written books on these subjects. So we're in good hands. But you know, every year it feels like our political climate grows more and more toxic. And we've all had friends, and I think this is particularly true in the church, who've just grown so weary uh, of the process that they've dropped out of any political engagement at all. And to be clear, there are a lot of political operatives, people who run campaigns who really want to see us at each other's throats as political opponents. Um, as believers, we ought to be talking to each other because we're bound together by a whole lot more. And so that's really why we're here. So dad, I'll pitch it to you. uh, And then we'll introduce everybody that's with us. Yeah. Weston has his thing and I have my thing. And professionally, the one thing we do together is issue one. I co-chair the reformers caucus of issue one, which is a national group of 200 former members of Congress and governors in a bipartisan coalition. Uh, Nothing has ever been put together like that before. Uh, I'm the Republican co-chair, a guy named Ambassador Tim Romer is the Democrat co-chair. It's about 57% Democrat members and about 43% Republican members, so it's very evenly divided uh, between the two parties, and some very prominent uh, former leaders are part of this. We meet and plan and strategize and sign on to things to try to improve uh, and restore confidence in the Congress and the executive branch focusing on ethics, transparency, and accountability. Um, You know, the president called it drain the swamp. We're involved in that, but it really trying to restore confidence that the people are entitled to in their government. And we've seen that wane. We've seen confidence wane in a lot of institutions, frankly, in this country. Even the Supreme Court's got the lowest confidence rating in history. So we look at ways to try to bring people together, even in the middle of our tribal warfare politically. And we wanted at some point to have this intersection of faith. I've been involved in public 
policy and politics for 40 years. I'm, I'm a product of the Reagan revolution. That was my first campaign and I've done dozens and dozens and dozens and I served 16 years myself. Half of my 40 years, I've either been a candidate or in office. And I have this story of brokenness and grace where twice in my life I rededicated myself to the Lord. And I, I have this thought that I think Dr. Land and, and Michael W. Smith, who are friends of mine, will understand that I always thought that a more perfect union and a closer walk with thee, two thoughts from different parts of my life, were similar, and that actually should be going in the same direction, a closer walk with the Lord and a more perfect union, which is what we should be about in this country. But there's sort of a collision on a lot of these things. And I remember years ago, uh, I read a book called Clash of Civilizations. And in a sense, we are really just rubbing raw bone against raw bone in this country. But truthfully, there's so many things that unite us. And so this is just a conversation and we're going to pitch it and start. Uh, I'm going to introduce a couple of you and Weston's going to introduce the rest of you. And then we're going to start into Q&A. But anytime any of you want to interrupt, there's somewhere north of 210, maybe 250 by the time we went on live, faith leaders from around the country that have signed on. They can go to the chat box and put a question up. And after one hour, any of y'all that need to drop off can drop off because that's all you committed to. But the chat box will be the questions, and we'll go to questions and stay on until maybe 20 or 25 after 4 Eastern time and, and pursue the Q&A. But please feel free, all of you, to interrupt us at any time. Weston's in charge here, but I'm just his wingman, which is kind of nice to be his dad. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Land. Um, many of you don't know him, as I said before we went live uh, to everyone. Uh, he, he was my interim pastor for over two years at Red Bank Baptist Church, but he just did that kind of on Sundays because he was in Franklin, Tennessee and was willing to do that because I raised our kids in a, in a Southern Baptist church here in East Tennessee, but I, I knew Dr. Land is the, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at that time when I first got to know him well, and today he runs and has for seven years the Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's the executive director of the Christian Post. I could also go through his resume for 30 minutes over what he's done and which administrations he served in and on and on and on, but he is really one of the foremost religious leaders in America today, uh, Dr. Richard Land. And so I want to I want to introduce my friend Michael W. Smith also, and then and then ask a question of Dr. Land. Um, Smitty and I have been friends for a long time. We've ended up on the same side of a lot of things. Uh, we've lost a lot of races together, and we've won a few. Uh, but I, I just got, and I chair the Gospel Music Foundation nationally, and so there's connection to Chaz and Smitty and many others. Uh, but Michael W. and his wife, Debbie, and I, I never want to exalt anyone because that's, that's not good, but there, there is uh, faithful and as genuine as anyone in the entertainment industry that I've ever met or ever known in this country, period, bar none. Five kids, amazing uh, walk. And the walk is the walk is the walk. You can't deny it. Smitty is the best of the best. He's had 31 number one hits, five platinum albums, 14 gold albums. I mean, he's written 14 books. Uh, he's been in a bunch of films. Every time I go to a faith-based film now, I go, well, there he is again, you know. And so he's, he's amazing. But thank you so much for your time. Dr. Land, maybe it's the best place to start with you. Um, 
Matthew 10, 16, when people would ask me, you know, what's your favorite verse? That's my favorite verse. It says, I send you out as sheep among the wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves. I saw that as a charge years ago. I, I think when Jesus comes back, he doesn't want to see us hiding and waiting, but he wants to see us engaged. But man, it's hard to be engaged as a believer if you love grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace and all these virtues um, in politics, man. And so what's the role of a person of faith in the public arena today when politics is the only venue to get to elected office and it's become ugly? Well, uh, I would, I would answer that question. It's sort of a, from a, a mega picture and, uh, I'm going to answer it by using as an example a man who's had tremendous influence on my life and continues to have, and that's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Baptist minister and who was, who was doing what he was doing from an overtly Christian theology point of view. And now, as a teenager uh, in the 60s, uh, I will confess to you that I had a hard time loving bigots. I mean, I just did. I know, I know Jesus loved Bull Connor, uh, but I had a hard time. I just had a hard time with people who were, who were racist. And yet, then I heard Dr. King talking about, he said, those that you would change, you must first love. And he was out, he was out to, re, to, 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 to liberate us all from racism, not just black people, but white people from racism. And, um, you know, let justice roll down like rivers of living water. And he called, he called on our country to live up to the universal ideals, biblical ideals, from the Declaration of Independence. And so um, whenever I am tempted to, to get ugly or to get sarcastic or to um, get irritated with people that accuse me of things that I didn't do or who, who um, you know, just have positions that are just totally the opposite of mine, I think about Dr. King. And, you know, if he could love those bigots, then... Uh, I can love these people and I can tr try to act redemptively and to deal with issues without getting personal and without getting ugly. Uh, I think, you know, we, we don't know what, you know, when, when the Bible says to judge not, the, the t context there is nobody knows what a, another person's going through except God. Nobody else knows. Nobody else knows what's happened in their lives up to this point. I mean, for instance, I've discovered in, in, in debates for over, 40 years now on the abortion issue, that a significant number of, of very pro-abortion women have had a really, really bad experience with, with a man in their past. Some man who, who, who lied to them, who, who, who exploited them, um, who got them pregnant and left them with the pregnancy. Um, you know, I, I, it's amazing how often that happens when I, when I get to know them well enough and, and that's what happens. I mean. We, I think Dr. King is a, is a great example to us. And it's one reason why um, the Civil Rights Revolution is one of the most successful social revolutions that we've had in the United States because uh, he changed people's hearts. He changed their hearts, not just, not just their behaviors. He changed their hearts. And that's what we're, we, we need to be about our father's business. And that means being you know, the salt of the law says that segregation had to go and, and, and laws that discriminate have to go. But light, you know, only the light of the gospel, you know, the way I put it is the salt of the law 
can change actions. Sort of the light of the gospel, it can change attitudes. The salt of the law can change behaviors. It's one of the light of the gospel that can change beliefs. And the salt of the law can change habits. It's one of the light of the gospel that can change hearts. Let me introduce the kind of young, younger half of our crew here. And then I think we all ought to take a stab at, at really that question. In fact, I've, I've been reading Justin and Michael's new book uh, that's an outgrowth of the Ann campaign that Justin Gibbony uh, who's Atlanta guy right down the road from us in Chattanooga, uh, is a, an attorney and a p political strategist, activist in Atlanta, but the president and, and co-founder of Anne Campaign, which I think is the most unique emergent political organization in, um, in America, frankly, because what you guys do is so hard to put in a specific uh, hole. Uh, it, it, you're, you're unpredictable in a way that I think is fresh. Uh, Michael Ware has been around this stuff for many years and was one of the youngest people in the Obama White House. Um, and, and then Caitlin Skess, and I, I've stressed over pronouncing your name properly, but I think I got it right, is, uh, is, is also a published author, but you got to wait a few more weeks to read um, her new book, The Liturgy of Politics. So uh, Justin, starting with you, just your quick thoughts on why I thought you guys so eloquently wrote in your book about how there's a lost opportunity if people of faith don't engage civically. Yeah, I think it's really important for people of faith to engage civically um, and to do it in the, a, a uniquely Christian way. Uh, and so, um, and thanks Wes for having me, but uh, I think that's a really important opportunity because I think there's two primary reasons that we're in the civic space and that we should participate. I think it's to defend human dignity and to promote human flourishing. Um, and the best way that we can do that, I think, is going against this false dichotomy that we talk so much about in our book, which kind of separates justice and order. Um, you know, for so long, it was thought that if you cared about justice in a social context or racial context, then you would go to the left. If you cared about order and morality, then you would go to the right. But when we look at the gospel, when we look at the walk of Jesus Christ, there was no separation. Those, you know, justice and more order, love and truth. There, there was, you know, there, there wasn't this false dichotomy, right? You actually see them coming together. And that's really what the AND campaign is about. It's about compassion and conviction, justice and moral order. And Christians need to be in that space because I don't think anybody can interpret it the same way as we do. I don't think any of these ideologies that sometimes Christians follow too closely have the moral imagination to provide the answers that we need at a time like this. In order to fix things at this time, you have to be able to see past the moment. You have to be able to see past what's even happened in history and kind of see what should be and see what ought to be. And that's why I think Christians really have a responsibility to step up at this moment and show some leadership, but we can't show leadership until we show a little more unity. Michael, you're the co-author. Why don't you follow that up and then we'll take, let, let Caitlin have a go. Yeah, so just uh, obviously agree with everything Justin said. Uh, just a, a couple additional thoughts. The, the, the first would be, um, you know, in, in, in another time, place, context, Christians might not have the responsibility we do here in the United States for political engagement, but it's just really important to understand, and I, I hear especially among Christians sometimes, this idea that uh, I don't want any part of sort of what's happening in D.C. or in state capitals. It's all so 
it's also messy. I don't want to be in, I don't want to be involved. It's too, it's too dirty. The, the interesting thing about the American idea, the American experiment is that you don't have a choice about whether you have a stake in our politics. Just by virtue of being a citizen, you have a responsibility. And as a Christian and as a citizen, the only real choice you have to make is how to steward that responsibility. You're, you're, you're already sort of scripted into the story of how our politics runs. You, you just have to decide how you're gonna, uh, uh, what, what role you're gonna play. So that, that'll be the first thing. And then uh, I agree with Justin, we go to politics to affirm human dignity, advance justice. What we do not go to politics for uh, is self-aggrandizement. We do not go to politics looking for our identity or a uh, primary sense of community. We don't go to politics for ultimate things. Christians find their security and their identity elsewhere. And it's actually the fact that Christians find those ultimate things elsewhere that they're actually freed up to enter into politics uh, for the love of their neighbors and for the good of the communities in which they, in which they live in. Caitlin, go ahead. Yeah, um, so very similar to what Michael just said, but I think having the uh, freedom to engage in lots of different ways, one of the things that I'm passionate about as a little bit more of a, of a theologian than a political analyst is the stories that we use to justify the policies that we support and the politicians that we vote for. And so whether we like it or not, like Michael said, we're inundated constantly with media and information and the communities that we live in and the conversations we have with our family and at work, we are exposed to really formative forces, to stories that vie for our ultimate allegiance, whether we want to or not. We're not going to be, you know, completely isolated from the world. I don't think that's what Christians are called to. And so if we're going to be here at all, we're going to be inundated with not only those messages that buy for our attention, but also the needs of our neighbor, the material needs that, that we have opportunities, quite powerful opportunities, especially for those of us with the privilege to easily drive to a voting location, to you know serve and volunteer at our community center. We have opportunities. And so if we're both inundated by potentially quite dangerous forces that buy for our attention and then given opportunities to engage positively, then we have a responsibility to interrogate those forces, to ask what kind of you know, ultimate questions are at stake here? What kind of stories am I being told? What kind of savior is being presented to me as an alternative option to Christ? And then how do I find a way to use these powerful opportunities I have in a way that doesn't tie me to these kind of ultimate allegiances? So how do I vote for a politician without him becoming or her becoming my savior? How do I you know, be a part of a party and hopefully try and push it to be something better, something that looks a little bit more like what I hope and what scripture describes as flourishing in the world? But how do I do all of those things being more formed by the practices and worship of the church than by those kinds of stories that we're inundated with constantly. And I think if we go, that's dirty and kind of complicated and I don't want to deal with that, we will be formed whether we like it or not. So it's just a question of whether we want to be intentional and scripture focused and theologically robust in the way that we engage. Well, Michael W. Smith, uh, we're just now getting to you. Thank you for being patient. Um, I've learned a lot. <laughs> you, know, you, it's easier when you're an entertainer and, and you know, you, you do sell music uh, and movies and books to just stay out of the public arena because, you know, I, I know it can cost you fans and cost you revenue. 
but you have stepped out many, many times. The governor of our state, Billy, is maybe your best friend. I think he, he's, you're one of his best friends. I know that. And, uh, and you've stepped out many times in, in my 35 years of knowing you well, you've stepped out with candidates, but it's easier not to step out. What do you, what do you think the role is for people of faith to engage and sometimes to uh, maybe expend a little political equity, a little relational equity, a little personal equity to help somebody that maybe you believe in? Well, Zach, it, I mean, uh, it's not always been an easy choice for me because I've always wanted to be able to speak to both sides of the aisle. Um, so it's not a flippant choice on my part going, I'm just going to support whoever I want to support. Um, but I think when it comes to policy, when it comes to caring about my family and my friends, and one candidate has a completely different set of beliefs than what I feel like maybe the candidate that I'm for has, um, I think there, there, there's just those moments that you just feel that thing in your spirit gut that says, I, I think I would like to be a voice for, for example, Billy, you know, who, matter of fact, was, you know, was in last place two, three months before this little race went down and, and look what happens. Pretty amazing, you know? Um, so, you know, and I obviously did the same thing with, with George W and friends with the Bushes for years, you know, but, um, but I've always tried to just make some other choices in terms of where I don't lose. Um, I just want to be able to speak to both sides of the aisle and I don't want to be pigeonholed as some sort of right wing guy. I want to sort of be down the middle, but again, what drives me is my faith and, and again, policy, what are the policies that are being set forth and how's that going to affect my kids and my grandkids? Mm. And uh, yeah, that's the, that's, those, those are the moments for me. So. Weston. One of the things I love, I mean, it's hard to squeeze everybody's voice in. I think all of you are worthy of an hour webinar. We might come back to you and, and ask for that. But one of the things I love the most about all these faces is that we, almost represent four different generations, but there's at least three here. And I think I'm gonna squeeze a couple questions I was gonna ask here together, and they actually apply to everybody. Uh, I, I want Caitlin to take the first go at it because her book is actually framed generationally. I you know, ran for Congress in my 20s and, and grew up in a political family, and so I've always fielded uh, all the political questions and taken all the political cynicism and tried to reverse it and try to convey to people uh, in the church that it's not either sort of you're a religious person or you're a political person, but that these things ought to be woven together and it really ought to feel natural. Um, do talk though about how the tox the toxicity in our politics that feels somewhat inherited, right? From the we grew up in the cable in the twenty four seven cable news generation. That's morphed into even probably the more toxic Twitter era. Uh, just talk about the generational implications, and then I, you know, I, I, Justin, I think you know you guys speak to some of that in your book. I'd love for us to go kind of back around, um, even to hear Dr. Land talk about seeing all of this, um, you know, over the course of many different, you know, you're still doing terrestrial radio, Dr. Land, I, I host a radio show, but man, you know, our politics and, and all this feels like it changes with media. But Caitlin, just first, your thoughts on generationally, are we, how do we avoid losing young people of faith to cynicism? Yeah, um, I think a lot of people right now have said something over and over that I will repeat, which is that my generation, and I think the generation after me, 
are very in tuned to what seems fake or inauthentic, uh, what seems hypocritical. And so when they see people, you know, kind of talk out both sides of their mouth or try and um, teach them things that only apply in Sunday school, and then they go out in the world and those same things don't apply, um, they're weary of witnessing some of that, of some hypocrisy and of some um, hypocrisy that often seems born out of maintaining power or accruing power. Um, but I think one of the things that, that I keep coming back to in the ministry that I do in my local church with people my age is that they are sick of this one presidential vote every four years being the sum total of all of their identity and their community and their political life and that becoming such a complicated question because it is, but it becoming so impossible to navigate. It's just intractable and so fraught that they, they're they can't do anything. And so one of the things I come back to a lot is if that conversation is overwhelming and exhausting to you, it's important and we have to come back to it. But let's start with what are local opportunities that you have? What are candidates that actually, you know, I'll go down to my local community center to vote and their friends and family will be there and I will talk to them, you know, and learn about them and learn about the needs of my community. When I vote for a local judge or sheriff, it's because I know the kids at this community center who might interact with that judge or sheriff more than I will. Um, and so kind of giving them opportunities to say, your political life is more varied than this one vote. This one vote is important, but there are so many other opportunities that might be less complicated by some of our own history and some of our, you know, kind of pitting different kinds of human dignity against each other. Figuring out how to deal with those questions is important, but that doesn't need to take the full weight of everything that you do. And so how can, you know, leaders who want to make sure that the younger generation is involved, how can pastors and, and their parents and people who are older than them say, come help me learn about the candidates in our area. Come help me serve at our community center. Come help me learn about the needs of the people in the neighborhood over from you that might be very different from yours and how you can advocate or write a letter or do something that's tangible and not as fraught by some of that toxic media and you know being on Twitter constantly with you know national updates. How can I kind of keep myself grounded in some things and start there and answer those big questions too, but start with things that are a little more manageable. Justin, how, how do you see, I, I have these moments where I realize I'm, uh, you know, throughout the day, I'll have seen this political story or this trending uh, subject on Twitter and everybody in the political world's got their hair on fire. And then I'll go hang out with a couple friend of ours who are people who are, you know, more connected to their church than they are political Twitter. And they're just living the good life. And they have no idea that uh, the political world uh, believes it's on fire. How though, and, and, and frankly, like a lot of those people seem to enjoy that they've detached themselves from politics. How do we still speak to them to bring them back in to a world that does seem now that it's like my dad and I always refer to this as the dumbing down or the, or the race to the bottom that feels like it is American politics, particularly on Twitter, not to keep picking on Twitter because I spend too much of my day there. But how do we kind of bring our friends back in who are kind of flying high above it all, at least to the extent that they are being civically active to that kind of basic biblical principle? Yeah, I mean, I think we just have to point to issues. I mean, it, it, I guess it just depends on your community. Um, I know, you know, if we're kind of more in a protected class, then it's not so clear uh, why we, we need to be engaged. If we're not in that protected class, sometimes it's a lot more clear uh, why we need to be engaged. And I think regardless of what, you know, what, uh, where you find yourselves, Christians should always be concerned about others. And I think when it comes uh, to the discourse, Caitlin made some very good points. You know, one of the biggest problems that we have with our discourse is there's just a lack of humility and a lack of, of intellectual honesty. 
every everybody wants to hold on to their narrative and everybody wants their narrative to be perfect and so there's no nuance but it's just this it's just clearly dishonest um and one thing that i tell christians is that we cannot participate in that i have to be able to if i'm coming from a, a more left-leaning side of the conversation um uh, uh, politically i have to be re- re- willing to critique my side i have to be willing to admit that we don't get everything right uh, and Christians should be able to re- relate to that. I don't know anybody who went up to Jesus with a perfect narrative and walked away with that narrative uh, intact. And so we need to be able to go into conversations, not really in a, a posture of self-defense, but sometimes walk into those conversations in more of a spirit of, of self-examination. And that just doesn't happen often enough. Smitty, you got any thoughts on that one? I wholeheartedly agree with Justin on that. I mean, I think, um, we try to hold on to the narrative and and we want to fight. And sometimes maybe we just need to sit down and have a conversation. I mean, I think that's, we, we lack that. And you know what? I always go back. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it, it's easy to sort of get caught up with your group of friends and, and, you know, it's, it's like the game, you know, you say something to your friend, it goes around the table, comes back and it's completely different. And you get, and there's people that are believing stuff. They think it's true and it's not true at all. And so I would just challenge all of us, but especially this next generation, just to challenge your thoughts and find out what's really true. What's the truth uh, in the matter of it all, whatever policy or whatever you're trying to figure out, whether it's Trump or governor, whatever it is, find out what the truth is and do some homework. And so we, I think, and again, I, you know, I, I post things on Twitter, but I don't get on Twitter. So I, um, I have a feeling that I would just, lose my mind if I was on Twitter all the time. So, <laughs> um, so I, I so, uh, Weston, I don't know what's going on on Twitter. There's a fire going on, but yeah. Good I, I get enough to know what's going on. And I think, I think we also have to be careful too, is that we, is I have to really make sure that I turn the news off because, um, it can rattle you. And sometimes you just got to take a break and be still and, and know that I'm God and take some prayer walks and don't be consumed by the news all the time. I think that's, a real key for believers. You At know, the same time, we're, we're going to come back. I think we've got to be. Cool. We've got to be engaged. We have to be engaged. That's a part of our responsibility as Americans. Yeah, we're going to come back to COVID in a minute, but I, I I would pick up on what you just said, Smitty, and tell you that in my neighborhood right now, there's probably five times as many people walking in the morning as there were before COVID. There are a lot more people stopping and talking to their neighbors and asking them what their name is and how their children are. And, you know, that's the ministry, really. Uh, Henry Nouwen wrote a book about it, the ministry of presence, where the real best ministry is where you just show somebody that you care. And that's where Twitter and the whole political world has taken us into this dimension where nobody cares and people who walk in faith need to care. So that's the good part of COVID. And, and I want to direct a question to, to Caitlin and Dr. Land, who are sort of the scholars of the, of the crew here. Um, and it's really about pursuing like a model or a role model. I remember when I first got to Congress, I met a group, uh, some of whom I think are on this call watching, associated with the National Prayer Breakfast. I got to know Doug Coe real well and got involved and chaired it myself, and I'm still extremely involved. But one of the models for public engagement that Doug always used and we really came to learn is is William Wilberforce. Dr. Land talked about Martin Luther King Jr., but we all have to look to someone who's engaged that actually makes a difference, 
William Wilberforce clearly did. You know, he almost came in under the mantle of the Reformation of Manners, but there were, there were a lot of social problems he was trying to challenge, and he used the legislature and relationships in the legislature to actually change a nation. And Martin Luther King Jr. did the same thing with the social change, but who are Dr. Land, Caitlin, our modern leaders engaged in the public square that are making a difference, that we can point to that are engaged in politics or public policy that are bringing about social change or criminal justice reform or equality or these things that we strive for because young people have to see somebody succeeding out there to even follow them. Caitlin, you go first. Yeah, um, a couple of things that come to mind for me. One is is Brian Stevenson uh, with Equal Justice Initiative, who is someone that's you know theologically grounded and a believer, and and working out of that, but seeking not just individual change in people's hearts, which is important, but then also structural change. So talking to people about racism and having those conversations that can um, change their hearts, and then seeking structural change both with you know fighting for people who are on death row or children who are facing life sentences, but then also so advocating for changes to the criminal justice system. Um, another group of people that I think is a great example, there's a short film called The Ordinance. It's on YouTube. It's easy to find a group, a bunch of different groups of churches of different denominations, Baptist, Catholic, non-denominational churches in small towns in Texas that couldn't get a legislative solution created uh, for the whole state. And so they sought local ordinances to put restrictions on payday loan places because the people in their communities uh, were incredibly vulnerable to being exploited by that. And so um, I think that's another powerful example too, because it's a group of Christians working across denominational lines, um, as well as some of the people in that, in that short film talk about how there are people in their congregation who either own payday loan places or who benefit financially from them. And they talk about how they see the work that they're doing as both trying to to end this exploitative practice against the most vulnerable people who are, who are having it happen to them, as well as spiritually freeing the people who are benefiting from this practice. They're, they're rooted in the Christian tradition really early on of, of being against usury, of scriptural mandates against exploiting people financially because of their debt. And so they're seeking to find better constructive ways to help the vulnerable in their communities without exploiting them through these places and freeing the people in their congregations that are benefiting from an unjust system. And they're doing that by working across denominational lines, which I think is a great example. So that's a short film anyone can watch. And I think it provides a lot of incentive for us to say, not only how can I, in my own context, seek structural change, but also who can I work with that maybe I'm not thinking I could work with? Dr. Land, do you have good current examples of people that are really changing things? Well, I, the, the one that comes to mind immediately is Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. And uh, their, their campaign, which they've been doing for several years now, called Bellevue Loves Memphis. Mm -hmm. Um, where they have uh, gone in and, and tried to minister to the city. Um, as you know, Memphis is a city that's a majority black city. Uh, it's got a lot of poverty, um, a lot of challenges. And, and Bellevue, um, they, they've got a mobile dental clinic, and they go all over, the, all over the Memphis giving free dental care. And when people ask them, you know, why are you doing this? Because Jesus loves you. Uh, we, we love you because Jesus loves you. Um, they got uh, volunteer construction crews, um, people in the church that are in the construction business, and they voluntarily went in and they brought all of the all of the city of Memphis's athletic fields and facilities up to the standard of the suburban um, uh, facilities. Uh, a lot of the football stadiums stuff were run down. They they brought them up to the, the level of the of the suburban areas. Um, they've got several hundred 
people in the church who have volunteered as teacher's aides uh, in the city of Memphis. And they go in and they're, 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 they're helping children learn how to read. Um, they, they, they cite a study that shows that if a child can read on grade level by the time they're in the third grade, uh, they have an 80% chance of never being in poverty, even if they're in poverty at the time. If they aren't on grade level by the third grade, they've got an 80% chance of being in poverty um, uh, you know, when they're adults. And no third grader is, is responsible for not being able to read. It's not their fault if they can't read. And so they've gone in, and, and, and the superintendent of schools in Memphis said, he said, if you stay with this, in a generation, you'll transform Memphis. And, and that's what they're trying to do. And, and at the same time, it has really impacted the church. Um, you know, uh, I've seen, I've witnessed the, 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 the deprofessionalization of missions. People, you know, back when I was a boy, the missionaries were the missionaries, and you supported the missionaries. Now, uh, for two generations now, evangelicals have been going on mission trips, uh, two-week mission trips. Um, you know, we had 10 opportunities in my church this summer to go on different missions, nine of them domestic and one overseas. Well, they have been more transformed by that effort and by doing that than the people they went to minister to. And I, the same thing's happening at Bellevue. They're, they're becoming transformed um, in, in, their, in their social consciousness. And uh, Memphis, which is historically, um, has been historically a, a majority white, significant majority white church, is now got uh, increasing numbers of African-American members because when they minister to these people and, 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 and they get to know them, they, they, they want to know why, and they come and, and they're joining Bellevue. And so literally Bellevue is transforming itself. But it's also transforming Memphis. And see, I think every church in America ought to be doing something like that, that they have that has the resources to do so. And I frankly think every church in America ought to be offering free Spanish classes. I mean, free English classes for Spanish-speaking people because they all want to learn English. Um, and, and I'd say, come, we'll teach you how to, we'll teach you how to read and write English free. And we, we would use Good News for Modern Man as a textbook, which is written at a fourth grade level. Hey, uh, this is a, a question that wasn't uh, sent to you beforehand, but Michael W. referenced it. And I think uh, Michael Ware will also have some interesting thoughts. And then I think, actually, I want you all to go around we also got a question in that was similar to what I wanted to ask you guys about reliable or just your favorite news sources. Maybe they come from a Christian perspective. Maybe they don't, but we do live in a world of increasing noise and it's more difficult to pick up signals in the noise or truth in the noise. Uh, a lot of us who are very <laughs> trained Twitter operatives use Twitter as a news source. Michael, though, just even professionally in your life as a consultant, uh, your years, uh, in the Obama administration were in many ways the kind of jumping off point to social media being such a major player in our politics. How would you encourage believers? You know, I don't think uh, personally that the healthiest way to figure out what's going on in the world is cable news primetime, but that's where a lot of the numbers are. Like, where would you point people? And then Michael W. will go to you right after that. I think people would be curious to know, like, where do you find out what's going on in the world? Yeah, so it's not, I think the search for like the silver bullet source that is just going to give it to you as it is actually belies like there, there is no single answer to these questions. There is no single way of looking at political uh, uh, ideas that's sort of going to give you everything. What I advise people is 
Um, and actually, Caitlin and I have spent a, a good deal of time talking about this. Um, yeah, I, I'd advise people to uh, read as broadly as you can and to make sure that um, you're reading things that are challenging your political viewpoint. If you find, keep track of your news media consumption over the course of a week or two. And if you find that there aren't multiple times over the course of those two weeks where you've read something that made you think, gosh, maybe I'm wrong on this issue, or I've never looked at it that way, um, then you're doing yourself a disservice, not to mention the sort of broader political community. Another sort of question I think about, which is not so much about what you consume, but about what you put out, especially on social media, um, I think of them as sort of 21st century spiritual disciplines that help us sort of buffer ourselves against a lot of the um, temptations and pulls of this moment we're in that, that you mentioned, uh, is if you look at your social media feed, your Facebook wall, your Twitter feed, um, look back at your last 20 political posts. And if all of those posts are about affirming your own political tribe, your political party, whatever, and about just bashing the other side, uh, then that might be a good occasion for for uh, for, for rethinking the way that you're, uh, you're engaging things. So yeah, those would just be a few tips. I mean, just to give people the specific suggestions. So I, um, I appreciate uh, National Review, The Atlantic, Boston Review. So that's a pretty, pretty good span. My friend Molly Hemingway, I, I try and read her stuff. I think she has a very incisive uh, point of view at, over at The Federalist. I try and read my friends at uh, Democracy Journal. Um, and so it, I, I try and read things that I know will hit me where it hurts uh, because if your views can't hold up against being pushed against, then they might not be worth having at all. Uh, they might not be a reflection of reality and what is actually true. And of course, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of, uh, we don't need to be afraid of, of reality. We, we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Mitty. Woo. Well, I'm guilty. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I watch Fox News a lot, probably because I have a lot of friends that, that that anchor on Fox. Um, uh, I need to read more uh, when I find myself, because honestly, I don't really know what to believe anymore. When you hear about fake news, is that really true? Is that from a reliable source? It gets very frustrating for me. So I, I need to challenge myself to read more, but I, I, a lot of times find myself when I get burned out on the news, just, I just want to go find the good news report and find about all the good that people are doing in the world and get a little bit of good, good news to brighten up my day. I try to do that every day and sort of wander off of what the latest headlines are. But Michael, thank you for sharing that. Cause I, I, I will, I will, I will hit some of those magazines. And I think I need to probably expand my mind just a little bit more. I'm not a panelist, but let me jump in right now because young people come to me all the time in the last 25 years and said, we want to be involved in politics. We want to be involved in government. What do I do? And I always tell them information is power and you need to find the best sources of information that you possibly can and saturate yourself in them and you will be armed to enter the public arena because it really is true. And today, as you said, Smitty, one of our biggest challenges is there's a lot of inaccuracies out there and it's hard to discern and that's a spiritual gift discernment 
what is true and what is not. And that's how the president says fake news. And it sticks because a lot of things are fake news. And for believers, I think our number one responsibility is seek the truth and stand on it. No matter which way the wind's blowing, no matter who's popular, who's not popular, if we stand on the truth, we cannot lose. Now, having said that, I used to get a bunch of sources of information every day, and I don't even know if this is wise, but I'll tell you that three things that I read every morning, there's a, there's a news source clips for, called News Items by John Ellis, and I subscribe, and I get every morning just unvarnished data, information from all over the world that I click on to anything I'm interested in, and it's an overnight, early morning service called News Items. Very, very effective way of getting, I, I trust the source, I know who he is, I know there's no, there's no angle there, there's no spin, so to speak. Another one is Dispatch, the Morning Dispatch, which you may not like the author because uh, he's been independent on some things, but it's good information and it's from a perspective that I can trust. And then in the uh, reform space, there's a publication called The Fulcrum, which is a very good way to actually see the truth on things from um, absentee voting and campaign finance issues and things like that that affect policy. And so those are three sources that I'll give you and then we'll jump right to the middle of the screen. And Caitlin, you go, and then Dr. Land and Justin on good ways, because this is a question from the audience, and, and these are people that are interested. Where do you get good information in the middle of this confusion? Yeah, not to totally dodge the question, but I, I think sometimes we're, like Michael said, very focused on finding this one source. Um, something that's been helpful for me is just reading more Christian writing on the nature of government and humans as political animals throughout history and saying, so I, you know, last semester read a ton of Augustine for a few months and it was really helpful to say, here's a Christian in a similarly tumultuous time dealing with questions of what's the relationship with my faith and government authorities. We have all of these letters that he wrote where he's writing, you know, as a spiritual leader to political leaders and praising them for things and criticizing them for things and calling out um, practices, even, you know, writing to leaders and saying, don't kill this person that's persecuting Christians. I want them to be redeemed. I want, you know, them to have forgiveness. All of these really great examples in a very different context. And so that's not, a, you know, obviously a source for current political information, but I do think too many people, especially my age, think that we will be perfectly well prepared for the next election if we read a ton of the right news source. And I think we might be better prepared if we are selective about the news that we read and we read from a lot of different sources. And that also means throughout history and getting the perspective that this unique place and time that we are at um, as American Christians who have the power to vote in an election is a unique time and place. And how can we you know, actually rely a little bit more on some wisdom from before us as someone who is quite young and doesn't want to try and speak as if I have all the answers to things. When people ask me about political questions, I tend to say, here are some things you can read because Christians have been asking these questions for a really long time. And that might not tell you, you know, ex-politicians position on something, but it might give you a better foundation so that when you receive that information, you're starting from a better place. Dr. Lane. Well, I, let me say, first of all, I agree with that. You need to, you need to read, um, uh, in, in history, you know, William Faulkner said that the past is not, not very, very far away. In fact, it's not even past. Um, you know, the human condition hasn't changed that much. Um, I find when I read uh, the Puritans, when I read um, Thomas Jefferson, when I read, um, you know, I just, last year, I reread a textbook that I had when I was a freshman in college at Princeton. 
and it was just as fresh as the first time I read it. It was Reflections on the Revolution in France, and it's a publication that puts Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine together in one book, and, and you read um, Burke's, revolution, uh, Burke's uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, and then you read um, uh, Thomas Paine, who has obviously a very different perspective. And, and you know, you, I'm amazed at how relevant it is to the issues we're facing today. Uh, I read the New York Times every day. Um, I've read it every day since I was 18 years old. It, it's now more of an addiction than discipline. Um, uh, I find I increasingly read it for opposition research more than anything else um, because it has changed radically. Um, it, it was justified with a paper of record uh, with a broadly liberal perspective, but it was very objective in its news pages and it's not anymore. Uh, but it still, it still gives you more information than any other newspaper I've ever read on a consistent basis. And it's, and, and it's look, I needed to read the um, 1619 Project. I think it's pure propaganda, but I need to read it. I need to understand it so I can respond to it. Um, I mean, you know, when you argue that America was started, uh, the founding date for America is a year before the Puritans got here. Uh, that's, a little, that's a little hard to swallow. Um, the... Um, I think that um, I, I read uh, Wall Street Journal every day. Uh, I read um, uh, USA Today every day. Take very long um, after you've read the sports page. Um, I, I read real clear politics. I find that you know they'll give you two articles on the same subject, totally opposite to each other, back to back, and they just let you know you hear both. You hear the yang and the yang. Um, I read the Christian Post every day, um, both because I'm, I'm an executive editor and because they have a lot of good information on there. Uh, and, and then I read the, I read the Federalist. Uh, I read the Atlantic um, magazine. I read National Review. Um, I, I watch Fox News. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I start off every day reading the New York, after I read the scripture, after having my devotion time, I read the New York Times. And then I read the Wall Street Journal to calm down. Um, uh, it, but it, you, you got to get a, different, a lot of different perspectives. And I will say this, there is no question uh, that the news, the, the, the secular news media is far, far more um, um, slanted than it used to be. Um, I mean, I, 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 I lament the fall of the once great New York Times. It was once um, justifiably the paper of record and, and quite simply the greatest newspaper in the world. It is no longer. Justin, if you've got a couple you want to toss yeah, in and go, go for I, it I just, and I'll have a I've got a follow-up for you okay great uh yeah I'll just follow up I mean I'll just mention I think even with 1619 it's really there are different writers and I think some of the writers do indeed have some very good things that I think people should read but just as far as some people that I think are um just valuable to read I, I really enjoy you Eugene Robinson I think he's a good writer that I, I appreciate his perspective uh, two of my favorites, and, and, and I'm like Michael, I try to get a variety of different folks. Two of my favorites, though, are Ross Douthit, uh with New York Times, and then uh, also Damon Linker with The Week, one kind of progressive and one conservative, but both very intellectually honest. And then if we're going to go to history, uh, something that I think people would enjoy is uh, Samuel Johnston, Johnson uh, had something that he called The Rambler. Uh, and if you read through that, you'll kind of get some, some moralist perspective that I think is valuable for today. Hmm. Well, my, so my two cents, because you guys have named all the good ones and everybody participating here is smarter than I am, but to clean my palate sometimes, I turn on BBC World News because it's a reminder that we almost only talk about ourselves in America. It's a sort of strange cancer of being the most important country in the world. 
And um, like today's a good example. If you go to CNN.com, there's like some story about the controversy with the MyPillow founder, you know, the president's friend, this, uh, you know, they're covering some drama. And then you go to BBC and you realize that uh, the, the president of an African country of 20 million people was arrested by uh, uh, soldiers that are uh, pulling mutiny. So it's uh, like the, it's sort of a bit of a reminder, actually, for believers that our problems are quite manageable in a global sense or an international sense. Uh, the follow-up, Justin, for you is that, you know, we're headed into, whether we like it or not, 80 miles an hour into one of the wildest election seasons of our life. I don't know that I believe the hyperbole that this is categorically the most important, you know, every, the baby boomers, no offense guys, have said that to us every four years for 20 years. But I do think this will be like maybe the wildest from a mechanical standpoint, because you've got a president who doesn't like uh, some of the functions of the way that elections are carried out. And, um, and so there's just a lot of questions, not to mention the tempers of the people are quite hot. How would you encourage pastors or other faith leaders who have people people are listening to to begin talking about this election season specifically kind of between here and november yeah that's a good question uh, we mentioned in our book that one of the reasons we wrote the book which is compassion and conviction was because we talked to pastors who literally had people fighting about the 2016 election in the church uh, and so one of the things that i try to tell people is that this election is important i don't think it's the most important ever uh, but it is very important, and, but it's not worth losing a brother or sister over. Uh, it, you have to make sure that you keep all of this stuff in perspective. And I, that's what I would, I would tell pastors. Try to bring some perspective to the conversation. We don't need to get partisan. There's enough partisanship out there. Bring some perspective. Politics, again, is very important. Sometimes we're dealing with matters of life and death, but for Christians, it certainly is not an ultimate thing. And we really need to make sure that we have the balance of a sense of urgency, a sense of duty when it comes to civics, but also perspective to say it's not an ultimate thing. And it's one part of the process, right? Uh, and in a way, the election is the end of a process, but it's also the beginning of a process. And so I would tell Christians, whether your person loses or wins, you should be engaged. If the person that you choose happens to win, then I would say it's even more uh, your obligation to make sure that you hold them accountable. Christians should not be defending and uh, condoning everything that the person that they voted in does just to kind of uh, justify themselves. That's not our job. I think you're more responsible to hold them accountable and to point out the things that you disagreed with them on so that it's clear that just because I voted for you doesn't mean I'm not gonna hold you accountable or that I'm giving you a mandate that, that, uh, that, I'm not give, that I haven't given you. Michael W., there are a lot of people in, the, in our world who look to you and appreciate your take on these things. You're just right up the road in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, our state's probably not gonna be one of them that uh, has a controversial outcome to our November election. In other words, we probably know which way it'll go. This is a, a pretty red state. But one of the concerns of those of us who work in political reform is that there may be, for example, a few days, it might be a week, who knows? It might feel a little bit like Florida 20 years ago when we start counting ballots uh, this November I've had this thought about how I think faith leaders, particularly pastors, can get get a little ahead of that with their congregations. How can you when, you know, I don't think there's a church in America where there's not somebody who wants Trump out and there's somebody who thinks it's absolutely necessary that he remains in office. But how can pastors speak to that? Particularly, you know, I, I fear if we get in this multi-day period where we don't know who the next president's going to be, that things might get wild. 
You're asking me that question, right, Weston? <laughs> yeah, I'm asking you. I think, I think you have to be, obviously, we all know this. I think pastors have to be careful what we say from the pulpit. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're probably talking more. I mean, I think you have to be careful a bit um, with that. Um, you know what? I just, I love your comment about the BBC and know that, that, that um, there's a lot more things going on around the world. We think it's all about us. So, uh, obviously, it is an important election. Um, I think we have to stay engaged. I just could, uh, the, uh, the great news for me, y'all, is that I know how this book, I know how the story ends. And no matter who gets elected in November, they're not the savior of the world, you know? And so uh, my wife, for example, would be probably a little bit more, you know, oh my gosh, you know? Um, I just think we just got to go, you know what? God puts people in power and takes people out of power. Um, but I think, and as I said, probably at the very beginning, I think you have to look at whether it's the president, whether it's a governor, whether it's a congressman or senator, what are the policy differences? What, what do these people stand for? What does that person stand for? And I think it has to line up with what you believe in and what you think the truth is. The truth always sets you free. And, um, and as Zach said earlier, I think that's what we, we have to stand on. You know, I think that's probably a pretty good message even delivered from the pulpit. Because really my question was just how, do you, how, how can faith leaders, particularly pastors, who in our own personal lives we look up to, go, go for it. Because I, I, you know, I preached, I, I figured it up um, uh, last year, I preached about 6,000 sermons um, since I was 16 when I started preaching. Um, and I think, I think that, first of all, um, we, we should never bring politics into the pulpit. We can bring public policy issues into the pulpit, but you always deal with it on a biblical basis. I mean, the Bible has something to say about the sanctity of human life. The Bible has something to say about racial prejudice. Uh, and the Bible has something to say about a lot of issues, um, about, um, you know, um, loving your neighbor. And what does that mean in a, in, a, in a public policy context? And so I think that the pastor... Uh, I, I never endorsed a candidate. Um, I did before I became um, a pastor and, and after. But while I was serving the denomination and while I was a pastor, I never endorsed a candidate, even though I had the right to uh, as an individual. Uh, I, I just felt like it limited uh, my ability um, to speak to the congregation. Uh, what does the Word of God say about this? And, and to, um, uh, what are our responsibilities? I, I think it's a sin not to vote. Uh, I think that uh, Romans 13 makes that pretty clear that we need to vote. And when we vote, we need to vote our values and we need to vote our beliefs and we need to vote our convictions, uh, not our pocketbook, not self-interest. Uh, I'll vote against my self-interest and for uh, the sanctity of human life if I have to make a choice. Um, but I think that, that you've got to leave it to the people to connect the, whatever dots they want to connect. That's I mean, I, I grew up in a home with a mother who was a Republican and a father who was a Democrat, and they canceled out each other's vote in every election. And my parents didn't disagree about much. And so they were both wrong because they were voting party loyalty and loyalty to a region of the country. My mother's from Boston. My dad's from Texas. Uh, rather than voting their values and their beliefs and their convictions, we need to vote our values and our beliefs and our convictions. We need to be informed voters. And we need to, our, as pastors, we need to, make sure our people are informed about the issues, that they understand they have a responsibility to vote, and when they vote, to vote their values, their beliefs, and their convictions. 
Dr. Land, I don't think it's heresy to say that the truth is our choices anymore are not good choices. It's really the decision you're making is which one of the choices is the less worse. You know, anymore, if you're going to run for president of the United States, I've seen this for 40 years, more and more, you have to be almost obsessive compulsive or have some kind of psychological disorder to go through the mess of becoming president. Justin said earlier that just because you support one or the other doesn't mean you have to support everything about them. I think we ought to have, we ought to have people of faith ought to have the courage, even if it's not popular to say, I love this about this guy, but I don't like this. I don't like the way he treats people. And, and we have too much of this, like you said, false choices in your book. It's not all or nothing. We should be able to articulate and, and differentiate between what's right and what's wrong. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, look, I, I wrote an editorial for the Christian Post in 2016 uh, saying that I was going to vote for Donald Trump as the lesser of two evils, that I had no, I, you know, I was going to cast my vote with less enthusiasm and less joy than I ever had in my entire um, adult life. And that, um, that uh, the best I could say was that based upon my understanding uh, of the issues, that um, he was the lesser of two evils and that, that I had a responsibility to stop the, to try to stop the greater evil from prevailing. Um, you know, now frankly, he's done better than I thought he would, but do I agree with Donald Trump about everything? Heavens no. And, 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 oh, and I, I wish to goodness that somebody would take away his Twitter feed. Um, you know, just, just take it away. Just, just, yeah. um, he doesn't, he doesn't, um, he doesn't speak to people about people the way I would speak about people. I think the way Christians should speak about people. Um, but yeah. And if we don't like the choices, we need to challenge our people to get involved and give us better choices. Um, you know, um, God may be calling some of the people in your church to run for office. Uh, God may be calling some of the people in your church to work directly in politics. I believe that public policy is a, is a calling. Uh, it's not my calling. My calling is the ministry. But I know people who are Christians. I believe God created them to go into public policy and to be a William Wilberforce, to be a Chuck Colson, uh, to, to be uh, someone who's making a difference in, in those areas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, um, we, we, uh, we need to understand, we, we need to not make the perfect the enemy of the good, and we not, shouldn't make the bad the friend of the worse. You know, I mean, I, I frankly don't buy this Pontius Pilate option. Uh, well, I can't vote. I don't like either one of them, so I'm just going to wash my hands like Pontius Pilate and not take responsibility. That's taking responsibility. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. We've kind of entered our four o'clock question segment. We've mixed in a couple of questions that were asked. If, by the way, we'll stay on because there's a handful of really good questions here. But if one of you panelists need to drop off in the next 27 minutes, don't feel bad about it. You'll just disappear and we won't say anything about it. Uh, but for the first question, I think this is a really good one. Uh, and I've dealt with this one in the last couple of weeks. It's a question from you, Caitlin, and, and I, I hope and expect a couple of you might want to chime in. It's from a fellow Liberty alum of yours asking if you know of any resources or recommendations for conversations with fellow believers uh, who buy into conspiracy theories. Uh, right now, and I say this just a mile from a congressional district that just uh, elected to Congress or, or at least the woman won a Republican nomination, she's a sort of admitted conspiracy theorist. Uh, I do find that 
communities of faith sometimes seem particularly vulnerable. Yeah, that's really significant right now. I feel like every time I think we're hitting conspiracy theory high point of the conversation, something else happens and there's more. Um, something that's been useful to me, you know, I was a debater in college, I'm a writer, uh, I'm a nerd, so I want to respond to these things with information. And so I'm going to send you all the articles and here's all the data and that's good. There's 100% a place for that. But what I've realized as I'm talking to people in my church, people who have sent me, you know, links to conspiracy theory articles or videos or, or even things that I, you know, wouldn't, there might be debate over whether it's conspiracy theory, but it's definitely questionable. When it comes down to it, most of the time what's happening is that they are wanting something so badly to be true or they're wanting something so badly to not be true. The world is so scary and it's more uncertain than I thought. And that's such an impossible thought to hold on to that I need to find something else to, to comfort me. And so I don't have a specific you know, book to read that would be helpful or, or website, but I think the focus could shift from us being solely focused on what do I, how do I respond to someone's cognitively held beliefs and more responding to what emotions are happening, what desires are being fed, what, what is a source of comfort for them, and how do I work my way back to dealing with that? You know, I had a conversation with someone at my church not too long ago where they were just so distraught over COVID and they didn't have a, a healthy place to deal with their fear about it. They weren't, you know, they didn't have a healthy place to say, I walk into a grocery store and it's frightening to me to see so many people with masks. And, and I understand that feeling. And instead of kind of working through that, they found the farthest reaches of conspiracy theory they could find because somehow that was more comforting. And I don't know that responding to that with articles and information is the right way to go. I think the way to respond to that, similar to, you know, dealing with racism in our churches, responding with information and data could be a good thing, but also dealing with what, what fear is at the heart of this? What part of your identity are you holding onto so tightly that you're not able to kind of deal with this in, in the way that other people are? And so I think asking yourself those questions, being self-reflective of what, what kind of comfort am I seeking? What desire am I trying to fill? And then trying to have those conversations with people where you get to that deeper level. And the good news is that as believers, we have answers to those questions. If you're not a Christian, I understand why you want to seek another form of comfort. But if you are, we have resources, a really powerful story, uh, like Michael said about just, we know the end of the story. We have resources to give people. And if we can respond with, with those things and say, here's the real comfort, I think that's a better way than going first to the data and information. A couple of you may chime in here. This is a question that um, we, we got asked a similar question. I had one teed up. Michael W., I love what you guys did to reconfigure playing music in the middle of a pandemic. I, I wanted us just briefly to touch on how faith leaders ought to talk about the pandemic. And, and it made me and just talking about conspiracy theories made me think about the pandemic because there are plenty to go around. But I love what you guys did, Michael W., because you basically said, all right, we're going to keep going, but we're going to do it in the most risk averse way possible. We're going to do it. We're going to go to drive in theaters in many cases in rural parts of America. There ain't no risk at all in people pulling up, you know, in their car. Um, and just talk about how you guys got to the place of deciding to do that. And then how I, I just think it's imperative for believers to talk about this pandemic with some humility, there's a church, one of the bigger churches in Chattanooga has begun holding, uh, you know, 600 people uh, services with no masks. And I just can't believe that for our witness, <laughs> that's the right way to go. How did you guys end up in the place that you did? And how do you think we can talk about this issue? Where, you know, all of us on this call are, are non-medical experts, but 
I think we're competent enough to talk about it in a, a humble way. Well, I mean, just to hit the drive-in theater thing, we thought that's probably the safest thing you can do. Um, I grew up in a little town that had a drive-in movie theater, so it was, it was, um, it was a throwback for me. Uh, it was extremely popular. Uh, you know, people got out in their chairs, and obviously everybody was six feet apart, and uh, I don't think anybody got COVID from being at the drive-in theater, as far as I know. But, hey, it could have been anybody, Weston, I mean – those people just came out because I think they were just itching to get out to hear some live music. And, and you know, I, I think I can say this with a good conscience. I think music is healing. And, um, and I think there was a lot of healing that happened, you know, at those, at those 10 shows. We're going to do it again in the fall. Um, yeah, so you, you just find a way to try to get the music to these people. You know, obviously our theaters are down, our symphony halls are down, and nobody's playing arenas. It's probably not going to happen until 2021. Um, in regards to conspiracy theories and mask and Fauci and who to believe and what not to believe. I mean, we're all going to have our opinion. I mean, uh, it certainly doesn't all line up in my opinion, but, um, as you said, I'm not a medical expert. And so, um, yeah, it's just, I have to, you know, I think through this whole thing, I think I have to really make sure that I retain a good attitude of, uh, you know, I'm going to walk in a restaurant and I have to wear my mask to walk in the restaurant, but I'm going to walk 10 feet to my table and I'm going to take my mask off and have dinner, but I have to put my mask on to walk back out the restaurant, you know? So it's all those kind of little things going, just take the chill pill, Michael, just, just, just do the right thing, make people feel comfortable. And, and I think we'll know a lot more in the future. In the meantime, it, it can't be a, I can't let this thing stress me out. It, it is what it is. I don't freak out when I walk into a grocery store. I just wear my mask and, and do what, uh, you know, the governor's asked us to do here in Tennessee. And so life, life goes on. God, God's still on the move. How about that? I'll let my dad follow this one up. But I, I think, Michael, you've worked in the White House. Um, Dr. Land's been appointed multiple times by different presidents. I asked an earlier question about how pastors can speak from the pulpit to what I was getting at are these kind of the process issues of the election, not a, it wasn't a partisan question of which person, you know, a pastor might support, but there, you know, you turn on any TV news right now, or for that matter, read the most high-minded publication you want. And, and you'll find conversations, ongoing conversations about access to voting. How can churches uh, just be good civic uh, players in terms of helping um, conduct safe and secure elections and, and encouraging people to vote and be able to do so in a way that they feel comfortable. Well, you know, I just start by saying the churches have uh, over the course of history been at the very center of this process. It's churches that have been at the core of their communities, churches that and houses of worship that have served as polling sites that have helped people register to vote. Uh, that people turn to for guidance on navigating a whole range of civic and public questions. And so I actually think that the church has a lot of the institutional knowledge and a lot of the, 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 the memory for doing this well. I mean, I, I agree with you. We're in a, uh, a, uh, a, a fraught uh, time in this election cycle for navigating those kinds of uh, issues. Uh, one thing that uh, that, that, that churches could do and that pastors can do is just um, uh, be, be really uh, direct 
be be really uh, uh, clear about um, weeding out so much of the uh, political fodder and just helping people to live out their faith in the civic arena. There are some great resources for um, for for figuring out how to vote. You could reach out to even your local officials for uh, uh, to come in and just give very clear nonpartisan guidance on how folks can best vote in this election. The church should be a place where where people can can turn to and feel like they're not being manipulated on uh, religion or on anything else. Uh, and and I think that uh, especially when you talk about certain traditions, uh, that's what they do. The church has been at the very core of uh, pushing back against voter disenfranchisement uh, and making sure that folks have the ability to to have the, have themselves heard in in our civic process. But it's uh, it's it's terribly important. I will say um, there's a, a a number of uh, efforts. One of them being um, uh, lawyers and collars, uh, which is a coalition of uh, lawyers and, and clergy that are working on voter protection and, and voter registration efforts. Uh, and then I know, of course, that this issue is important to issue one and, and that you all are, are working to make sure that uh, our civic processes are, are open to folks. The last thing I'd say on this is it's really important we get this right. It's, it's really important that the American people have a baseline expectation and that our political leaders aren't for their own benefit uh, mystifying the political process. Any conversation about civility, any, any conversation about folks working through the political process to air their grievances rather than anything, all of that falls to pieces if folks can't have basic confidence uh, that that they're going to be heard, that the civic processes themselves aren't going to fail them. And so it's, we can't play games with these kinds of questions. It's really important that this stays above the, the political frame. So my question comes back to that. Um, I, I do think, Michael, that it's every bit as important this year that the world sees us still be able to pull off a free and fair election in the middle of this crisis as it is who wins. I mean, I, I really believe if we can't do this and we're, you know, weeks or months into even knowing who won or questioning whether it was valid, it's really problematic. It actually, it, it doesn't reflect well on our ability to govern even in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, we're already looking at how well the, the crisis has been handled compared to other countries, but now can we carry out an election? One thing that aggravates me more and more, politics has always been a contact sport. I don't expect people to be nice to each other because politics has always been rough and tumbled. I mean, we've had Tennesseans reprimanded in the Congress for hitting other people with a cane. I mean, we've had bloody political battles, but even from the time I first ran till now, campaigns are full of outright dishonesty. I mean, it's not, to me, if you call it out and you're calling balls and strikes and you're being honest about your opponent, everything's fair game in politics. And that's actually the way the First Amendment uh, protects people is you can say whatever you want to, but the truth is it's now gotten so outrageous don't people of faith, Dr. Land, have a responsibility to say when something, we talked about conspiracy theories, there's so much just outright false, made up, 
Smitty, we just saw a campaign in Tennessee where, unfortunately, a lot of the undertones were just totally, totally allegations that were not based in any truth, yet that prevails. Don't we have an obligation to say, you know, you make your mind up, you make, you decide, get the information the best way you can, but this is actually factual and this is not? Yes. Uh, I think that we, you know, we, we have an obligation to be truth tellers and to call out people when they're not truth tellers. Um, goodness knows, in our present political situation, there is enough uh, disagreement, honest disagreement, that right. we don't need to dishonest disagreement. Uh, and we don't need to question people's motives. Uh, we just need to deal with, you know, we, we, are, we are, I think, quite clearly it's obvious that at the national level, we are a deeply divided country with differing perspectives on um, who we are and who we want to be as a nation. Um, and, and there are some fundamental differences. Um, and we have to be committed to, to um, resolving those peacefully. Frankly, um, I am fearful uh, that uh, after this first Tuesday in November, that we are going to have probably something much worse than a repeat of 2000. Yeah, I do too. And um, I made a prediction on Thursday after the 2000 election that how it was going to be decided. I said, I don't know who's going to win, but here's how it's going to be decided. It's going to be decided by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is going to rule on, the, uh, ba they're going to base their ruling on the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled seven to two that Florida cannot count votes the way they were counting votes. You can't have different uh, standards in different counties. You have to have a statewide standard. And secondly, they voted five to four that time had run out and that they had to, the, the Electoral College had to vote. And so Bush became the president. Now, polls show that 20% of the American people don't think Bush won the election. Now, I think they're wrong, but they don't, they, they believe in their heart of hearts that Al Gore was elected president, but they accepted the outcome after the Supreme Court ruled. We still had that much respect for the rule of law. Um, I'm afraid that, that, that we have taken the rule of law for granted in this country because it's always been part of the furniture in the room. There probably aren't 10 countries in the world where the Gore, Gore versus Bush would have been settled as peacefully as it was in the United States. And I'm, I'm frankly fearful that uh, we don't have that much respect for the rule of law anymore, that, that um, we could have serious civic unrest no matter who wins. And uh, I, we need to pray for our country. We need to pray that we get through this and that, um, that we, we, we pull back from, from really um, some, some real ugliness that could occur. That could, that could, you know, the, the, the social fabric of the country is a lot easier to rend than it is to mend. Yeah. Hmm. Caitlin, quickly, before we move on from that subject, I, I, I'm curious, actually, just if you, your book that comes out, what is it, September 8th, 9th, something 8th. like that? 8th. Uh, if you go into this kind of nastiness element of politics, because I, I do like one of my great optimisms is that millennials and Generation Z, while they may not share some of my political principles, that I, I see the way that they laugh, like literally laugh at, at the ridiculousness of attacks that politicians use these days and sort of the dark scre screens and the same music and the same five voiceover actors who make a killing in the political ad business. Do you talk at all about that in your book and because it feels fundamental to the cynicism I pick up on in so many young people about our politics. 
Yeah, uh, not so much into maybe how to have that conversation better, but certainly into, you know, what uh, what is driving that toxicity? What is driving that um, that quick rush to debate instead of understand. And I think a lot of it comes down to some of the legacy, as you said earlier, that we've inherited some of that toxicity comes from not only thinking of politics in terms of your identity and placing your identity in a certain way, but it, it really functioning in terms of your loyalty and who's in and who's out and who is the them that I'm against and reorienting that to saying we as believers Everyone else, you can, you know, have that kind of us versus them, and I don't really see why you wouldn't. But as believers, if we really have our fundamental identity as being part of the people of God, that people who not only vote differently than us, but are not Americans, who don't have the same skin color as us, who are from a different generation, if our fundamental loyalty is to those people who are very different from us in every other kind of way, and not only that, but people throughout history, if we're more similar to someone hundreds of years ago in a different country than we are to someone next door to us, because of that really fundamental identity as part of the community of God, then that should change. Not only, yes, we should be kind to one another. We have, I mean, obvious scriptural reasons to love one another that we would be known by that, but that that also should kind of chip away at that very normal human instinct to create this close community that I protect against others. And they're outsiders. And if they're not us, then, then I have that fight or flight and I will be against them. That's a normal psychological response. But if we are formed by the worship of the church, by the songs we sing that remind us of that truth, by the, the liturgies that we say together, the verses we read, the sermons we hear, the fact that we are baptized into a community that places obligations on us, if those normal functionings of the church can create a more fundamental loyalty and sense of community as the people of God, then I, I've seen in my own context that be a source of having more productive conversations, falling less into that toxicity and less into that, um, you know, winning as opposed to seeking flourishing in our communities. Okay, one final question, then we're going to wrap up here within the next three minutes. And notice that Dr. Land basically predicted a constitutional crisis and real problems, and then he just clicked off. He just he just vanished. He just exited. <laughs> stage left. You know? I mean, what what a great thing to leave us with. Um, multiple questioners on our Zoom questions have asked this from a believer Christian standpoint: Is it okay to abstain from this fall's election because I can't bring myself to vote for either choice? Multiple people have asked that same question. That, and we didn't get to that earlier, but I, I am interested because, you know, when he said it's the lesser of two evils, some people call it the evil of two lessers, you know, in 16 and 20, where a lot of Americans are just like saying, is this as good as we can do? I mean, is this all we can, what, what do you think about just checking out, Michael, and not, and either not voting or voting down ballot for somebody that doesn't matter? Yeah, yeah so th this is, this is worth a long longer conversation than we have time for. L let me say this. Um, a lot of times when, when Christians ask this question, I think it's important to remind folks that Jesus is not confused about our political system and how our politics works. You don't go into the voting booth, uh, make your decision, then come out and then have to, have to go, oh, Jesus, oh, man, it was crazy in there. You have no idea the choices that we had. He, he gets it. <laughs> he, he, he knows. As Christians, in politics and in all things, 
our job is not to determine the outcome. Our job is to be faithful with the responsibility we have. And so often, um, I, I, I just want to reframe this, this, uh, this sort of idea that um, I, I can't choose between these two candidates. Mike, no, you did not choose the candidates before you. You're part of a political community. That political community made a choice. Your choice about your vote is how do I steward my vote in a way that best leads to the flourishing of my, of my community with a preferential option for the poor, as the Catholics would say. There are uh, different traditions, use different language, but, but uh, with, with special attention towards those who are most vulnerable and most uh, facing injustice. How do I make a decision that's for the best flourishing of my community as I could see it? Uh, and, and that's what a faithful decision looks like. You're not complicit with everything the person you vote for uh, did. If so, then none of us would ever be able to vote ever. <laughs> um, you, your job is just to be faithful with the responsibility you have um, with, with the choices uh, that we have. That, that we're all a part of making, but that no single one of us is, is, uh, is responsible for uh, on our own. Okay, final shameless one minute. Michael W., what is your tour called? Where can people go to see where you're gonna be on your tour? Uh, it's just called the Drive-In Movie Theater Tour. How about that for? Drive-In <laughs> Movie Theater Tour. Go there, yeah. don't miss. It starts tomorrow, doesn't it? Well, it starts in September. We're, we've already finished the first half, so we'll go back out in September. And, Kaylin, what's your book called? It's called The Liturgy of Politics, and the subtitle is Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, and it's out on That's September 8th. September 8th, okay. And, and what? who's the publisher? InterVarsity Press. All right, and Dr. Land, give us a little uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary promo. Well, we're Southern Evangelical Seminary is the only – Thomist Natural Law Evangelical Seminary in Captivity. And uh, we proudly claim that. We, we believe you can use the natural law to argue for uh, the truth of the gospel. You can check out us more by going to ses.edu. And, and we're praising God. We've had a 61% increase in enrollment since the pandemic came. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're just, uh, we're, we're, we want to be useful to the church. Uh, you can go to ses.edu and find out all the information you want to about um, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Great. Michael, 15 seconds. Yeah, uh, Compassion and Conviction came out last month and Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. would love for folks to pick and that up. And Campaign. My exhortation to everyone, pastors and all, encourage your parishioners and those you love to vote as safely and securely as they're comfortable with and then prepare to pull together publicly so that we can carry our country through with level heads, a peaceful transfer of power, which is part of our tradition, avoiding a constitutional crisis, encouraging all leaders to come together to accept whatever the result is whenever we know it. We have to do this together. On behalf of Issue 1, thank you all very much for participating. Amen. We're very, very grateful. Be blessed. Stay safe. God bless. Thank, thank you. all of you. God bless you all.